0: Coming to Australia was probably one of the, the best things I ever did because of the diversity of the city and all the different cuisines and just the stuff you can eat on your days off and I, um, the people I've met and just the Australian culture it's, itself has been really probably the best move I've ever made. And I think Australia is, is probably cooking some of the best food in the world right now.
1: This is The Crackling. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stepping out of the shadows can be daunting, but it can shine a new light on the value in each and every one of us. After a decade working with one of Australia's most influential chefs, Andrew McConnell, JP Toomey decided the time was right to go in search of his own identity, his own style of cookery. As he discovered, the incredible foundation built over the last decade not only gave him the confidence to step out of his comfort zone, but deliver Melbourne, one of its very best restaurants too. So JP, you landed in Australia on New Year's Eve in 2000 as a 19-year-old. What, what brought you here?
0: What brought me here? I've got, um, my friend My friend was coming and his um, partner was Australian. Um, I've got two, Mel- two uncles in Melbourne and lots of cousins, so I was, al- I was always going to come here. But I think when my friend said he was coming with his girlfriend, we bought one-way tickets and I haven't looked back since I've come.
1: (laughs) Well, you did start your career as a chef for a couple of years um, back in Ireland. Can you tell us about that period of time? And was Australia a big shock to you when you arrived from a career
0: sense? Um, I started my uncle, my uncle has a restaurant in Dingle in County Kerry so i just um i wasn't doing well at school i, I, I just hated school i needed somewhere <laughs> something else to do and um, so I, I started working with my uncle in summer holidays I'm from the age of 14 um, scrubbing mussels scrubbing oysters he had a seafood restaurant um doing some do, doing some dishes and i think from 14 to 16 i spent all my holidays there just doing doing all the pots and pans and s- scrubbing uh, mussels and oysters and stuff um and when I turned 16, I was eligible to um, enroll in a uh, apprenticeship in Ireland. Um, so I enrolled in that. It was like a, um, it was in a hotel. It was a two-year course. It was live-in, so it was like six months um, living on campus, and then six months doing work placement. Um, so in the hotel, you would do your do do all your training, with is front of house training and back of house training. Um, Monday to Friday, every weekend I'd go to my uncle's restaurant and work. You were living in the hotel. You had it started at nine o'clock in the morning, and you'd finish at I think four, and then you had two hours every night from I think nine nine p.m. to eleven p.m. You were allowed to go to the pub and just get wasted and come back to the hotel, go to sleep, and (laughs) and just get up. I think that's it was like Groundhog Day every day, the same thing. Everyone got went on, got pissed for two hours, and came back. and then after I did my training, I um, worked in some, some hotels in Ireland. Um, and then, yeah, when I was 19, uh, I met my my friend at one of those hotels, and we decided to come to Australia. Uh, and I think the question that you asked about, yeah, Australia was a huge shock, I think, just the different ingredients and um, all the different foods you, you don't get in Ireland. Um, so when I came to Australia first, I... Um, Worked with Paul Wilson at um, Radii at the Parachite, Um which was like, I think when, um, when Paul, he just won Chef of the Year. He had, I think it might've been four hats back then when they were doing, when it was four or five hats. Now it's only three hats. But um, yeah, so I applied for a job. I applied for lots of jobs when I came to Melbourne first. And it, um, I didn't work for the first three or four months. And I think I found it hard to find a job at the beginning um, I had lots of interviews but lots of the places I went to just didn't really, I don't know, just, I didn't really feel it. And then I got a phone call from the guide, um from Sean Donovan, who was the sous chef at the time, with Paul Wilson. And um, yeah, I, w- I, w- I went there and I just, I loved it straight away. And um, I clicked with Sean, clicked with all the guys, um, did my trial, they rang me back and I got the job. And um, yeah, that was, um, that was an amazing, amazing place to work. It was, I think, sat 150 people. It was a big, big restaurant. Um, big, huge kitchen and um, lots of chefs um, and I think uh, working in that kitchen, I think paul was um paul was a really interesting chef back then he, I think he had he kind of touched on every every cuisine when he was working at radio it was like um italian chinese, a little bit of Japanese, a little bit of um Thai a bit of Vietnamese. he's kind of covered everything and paul's known for his like big big bold flavors, so he um I got to see lots of different ingredients there, like I would never, have, you'd never get to see in Ireland. Um, lots of Asian ingredients, like lots of like really nice soy sauces, uh, spices like ginger, lots of different chilies, all the different herbs.
1: Was there any dishes from that time that you still remember?
0: Yeah, there was one dish that was sent me down very, very hard. It was a, a tuna, tuna, tuna sashimi. It was one of his signatures, just a tuna sashimi with a wasabi panna cotta. Um, it's just the way it was plated was like, it, it was very fiddly and it took like ages to do. It was like sliced sashimi, was panna cotta out of a dairy mold. And then it was spring onions marinated in soy sauce, some freshly um, shaved daikon and some fresh spring onions. Um, and it was all kind of layered up around the outside of the panna cotta. So it just took you like, it took like four or five minutes to plate each one. And I just remember the first time I did them, it was like, it was just hell. It was like one of the worst nights of my life. And in a 150-seater restaurant, so you can imagine you sell 30 or 40 dollars a night during service. like Lots of prep and for service as well. It was like, yeah, pretty scary.
1: <laughs> you had an extraordinary start with a chef that's been one of the most influential in Melbourne's culinary history, Paul Wilson. And you followed him to the Botanical, which became a very renowned restaurant. What, what was that period of time like?
0: Yeah, so um, I went from, yeah, went from Rady I to the Botanical with Paul. Um, and Chris Lucas when they opened uh, Botanical. Botanical was, um, well, I've, n- I've never opened a restaurant before. And Botanical was seven days a week, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you're doing like 150 for lunch, to 180 for dinner, like every day, for like the two years that I was there. So it was, it was, um, it was quite an experience. It was, it was, um, it was, um, it was, my, yeah, it was, it was very, very busy. Um, and I've never worked in a restaurant that, that. Um, that style, like breakfast, lunch and dinner before, and um, um, yeah, just I think from when we opened the, the two years I was there, I think there was only two chefs left in the kitchen that I actually started, everyone else had like finished, had left, I think we went through, it was so busy, we went through maybe 40 chefs in six months or something, it was just so intense and so busy, I don't think, I think it was a... Even even for Paul, I think it was um, it was a big change as well. I think with a restaurant like that, you start out with all these ideas of how you want how you want stuff done, but I think eventually you kind of have to um, you got to work a bit smarter, not harder. I think lots of like we were going through maybe twenty five, thirty kilos of calamari each day, and I think we were getting that in at the beginning, and it, like people were cleaning it from start to finish. But I think Paul worked out a deal with the fishermen where we could get it in cleaned and get the fishermen to clean it instead of us doing it. Um, so yeah, everything, it was just like lots, each job had like a lot of um, components to it. So it was just big and big and busy.
1: What sort of impact did a chef like Paul Wilson have on your career in those early years?
0: Oh, a massive impact. I think Paul was, I don't think he spoke to me for the first three months at Radio but I think, I think that was just the old school way. Once I, he seen I put my head down and got the work done, he kind of warmed to me and he, I earned his respect. And after that, I think he, he um, the, the amount of stuff I learned of Paul, as I said, like ingredients I've never used before. And he always took the time as well to like um, educate you, which is really, really good. Um, and Paul was always like, he was one of these guys that always had like five or six specials on all the time. He didn't like, he never let up. And you you get handed the specials at like one o'clock in the afternoon when you're already in the shit. Um, but I think, yeah, he's... Um, he, he really had a strong connection to producers as well, Paul, which I really hadn't seen before, which is really good. Um, and I think the big thing for me with Paul was, my, was the first time getting introduced to like all the Asian techniques and stuff I'd never ever seen before, which is which was a real eye opener for me. Um, and also he like uh, using a wood oven as well at the botanical was really really interesting. We had a wood oven at Radio as well. He we did a lot of cooking from the wood oven, which is good, something I'd never seen before. Um, and just yeah, just the different techniques, um, like cooking meat, cl- lots of classical dishes as well. He was very classical. And lots of his um, preparations, which is really good. Um, and I suppose seeing someone manage a kitchen um, seven days a week, breakfast, lunch, and dinner as well, is quite inspiring. Uh, of that of that volume, you know what I mean? You probably you, you probably hated it at the time when you were working there, but you look back on it now, and you've like you've I learned a lot of a lot of things from back then.
1: You've become a real fixture in the Melbourne culinary scene and you've worked with some incredible people, not just Paul Wilson, but you spent over a decade with Andrew McConnell in various establishments. What's it like working with Andrew? He's such an influence on that city.
0: Oh, Andrew! Andrew's great. Andrew's like, um, I think Andrew has something that not a lot of chefs have in Australia. I think he's got that sense of style that he brings to the, to the restaurant as well as the kitchen. Like most of Andrew's restaurants are, um, he designs them as well. Like he's, he's got that eye to detail on uh, like the finishing touches on the table. Um, just a, he's got an eye for design. I just don't think a lot of other chef owners have. I think a lot of chef owners are, um, the majority of them are, like are probably focused on the kitchen where Andrew's more, he's over kind of everything. And I think he's just like, he's got, he's just got an eye for detail. He's into lots of art and, you know I mean, all this, this stuff like that. So it's really good.
1: You worked with him across many venues, but you ended up becoming the development chef. What, what does that actually involve?
0: Well, the development chef, the role I had was um, spending, um, as I, when I started out, I was spending a week at each venue, um, kind of like a, a set of fresh eyes really, just going into each business, having a look and um, seeing what could be fixed, see what was good, see what was wrong, um, front of house and having a look at some front of house stuff as well and then just implementing some better systems so the kitchen was flowing better, helping the head chefs, um, looking at some costings and rostering and just seeing how we can make it flow better. Um, and then it started off with a week by week and then if we ever opened a restaurant, I might be pasted, at say Supernormal or something like that for six months just to get it up and running and um, help um, help develop the younger chefs and help train with the younger chefs because the head chef was usually tied up with doing the pass and all the other stuff and then I could just float around and keep an eye on all the uh, stock levels and um, how everything was being prepared and make sure everything was kind of done properly. Um, And I think it was just basically just another pair of eyes for Andrew in the business because Andrew was in between each business as well. Um, I think he he trusted me to make decisions as well on his behalf, which was good. So I'd been with him for so long and um, I was mainly in charge of the creative side, like creating dishes and helping with menus and stuff and then giving the help giving the chef some help with um, the management side as well if they needed it
1: what was it like being in that role you're used to being on the pans and running a kitchen day to day and then you're sort of moving from venue to venue what were the challenges involved in that
0: well i think the, it was it was really good because i had been a cutler for maybe two and a half three years as the head chef which is really grueling and challenging and i think i kind of kind of grew tired of the fine dining aspect just the degustation and stuff so i think when andrew offered me that position it was it was um, it was a, at the perfect time, and I really really enjoyed it. I think it's, um, it's uh, it was exciting to see all the all the different kitchens and get away from like cooking cutler style of food. Maybe to go into Cumulus where it's a bit more sharing style menu. It's not as like individually plated. Um, and again, going to Cumulus as well, you're working. It's a seven day seven day a week breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So you you're covering all aspects again. Um, so you're doing some breakfast dishes um they also had sandwiches and stuff so there's a, a lot of stuff to learn there and then you go to super normal which is different again you're learning asian asian techniques and ingredients um i think that was one of the good things with andrew's restaurant each restaurant was quite different so it wasn't the same everywhere you went so, which is really really good uh the Arms was like bistro pub food um, uh challenges were um i think maybe Getting a grasp of breakfast accumulus is quite hard. It's it's a it, it was a busy busy <laughs> busy service, um, and I think consistency, probably consistency like anywhere is hard. I mean I think that's the biggest thing I focused on, and it was always when you when you go a week uh, a week at one restaurant and you're away for four weeks and you come back and you're back at that restaurant again. I think just little things that you know kind of piss you off, but you kind of uh, put things in place to make sure they don't happen again. Um, but overall, there was. It was more um, positives than negatives really.
1: When a chef has so many venues like that, how influential is someone like you on the menu? Is there, is there your ID on the menu as well in the McConnell establishments when you were there?
0: Yeah, for sure. Andrew was really good like that. And I think he still is. He's, even when I worked at, I think when I joined him at Circa, I think the first two months I was there, he just gave me a pigeon dish and he was here to make a special out of this tonight. Like he, he placed that trust in his chefs, which is really, really good um and i think that's i've always been that's the, the part that's really excited me about cooking is the creative side i've always been really really creative and um, the management side i've I've gotten better at but being creative was what i really was happy with and i think andrew andrew um had a lot of trust in me and over the years when i worked with him and definitely at the end i had a lot of lot of say on the menu and stuff it's uh, super normal and some stuff accumulates as well um and I think, yeah, because Andrew was um, busy doing a lot of things. He needed someone in the business that could um, he could trust, that could make those decisions with menu changes and stuff when he wasn't there.
1: How have you seen food change during that time working with Paul Wilson and working with Andrew McConnell over so many years? How would you explain the sort of food culture and, and what you guys were doing, I guess, at, towards the end of your time with, with the McConnell Group?
0: Well, I think going from um, Paul was like, Paul's flavors are like big and bold and um, lots of classical European dishes, like lots of um, French sauces and stuff. And then when I moved to Circa with Andrew, I seen Andrew was a bit more um, I think Andrew maybe had a little bit of better better understanding of the uh, balancing Asian ingredients because he'd worked in Shanghai for a little bit and he'd, um, lots of places he'd trained before, had used lots of those ingredients. I think Andrew had like a lighter, a lighter Focus on his dishes, um, but I think Paul, I think Paul is always like looking at Paul the way he's walked through his career. I think he's always kept that, that motto where he like he he uses lots of like he went through the Mexican phase, and I think he's he, he always uses lots of different cuisines in his cooking, which is really really good. Um, and I think Andrew Andrew's cooking has always been light and delicate, which is he's got his own style. Um, but I think from like we're cooking from when I started to where I am now, I think um, I think cooking has got a lot lighter. It's not as heavy anymore. From when I started in Melbourne first, I think um, it's a little bit more organic and stuff. I think a lot of chefs are really into um, produce at the moment, like um, supporting local farmers, especially lots of vegetables and stuff. I think when I was at 312 when I was with Andrew, I think we had Andrew Wood, was probably one of the only farmers that supplied um, uh, vegetables direct to the, to the restaurant and I think now I think there's maybe five or six which is like which is a big leap and it's which is really good because I think um, where we are now lots it's very very important for your restaurant like supporting our, uh, locals and getting vegetables and stuff direct from the farmers. You
1: ended up leaving the group and you're now at Carlton Wine Room what, what led to that change?
0: Well I think I've been with Andrew across various restaurants for about 10 maybe 11 12 years all up and I think I just, um, I probably just achieved everything I could have achieved with Andrew. Um, and I just think I just wanted to see if I could do it for myself. Um, there was, I think I sat down on Andrew, who was very emotional when I handed in my resignation because I probably wasn't sure what I was going to do next, but I think I had to do it. Um, and then I took, probably took two or three months off after, after I've left Andrew, took a job at Gilson briefly just to help out um and then um Travis and Andy um purchased the Carlton one room and Andy Andy I'd worked with Andy since 312 so I've probably worked with Andy for 10 years as well across the McConnell group and I uh, we've always talked about maybe doing something together or, um yeah doing a restaurant and then I think Andy had a coffee with Andy Andy told me what he was doing and I said yeah I'd be interested in doing it and I think it just just went from there and then it's um I think we've been open two years now two, maybe two and a half years maybe February 2018 and yeah it's just um it's, it's it just clicked as soon as we opened which is really good it's like we've got two there's two owners on the floor which is um which is really good and I kind of run the kitchen for the guys Travis does the dining room and the wine list and Andy does the um, accounts and um does the downstairs barrier, area, and I think we just clicked. We've got a really good front of house, really good kitchen, really good kitchen crew, and it's um, yeah, it's been kicking along since we've opened, which is really good. Cool.
1: What was it like when you first stepped in the kitchen? There, you are used to creating dishes within the McConnell Group, but this time it was was your own identity fully. What, what was it like?
0: Oh well, yeah, it's, I think it's really hard when you when you've worked with someone for Andrew for ten years. You don't really want to um. You want to kind of step away from what you were doing with Andrew because you don't want people. You're worried like people will um think your food is a lot like what you're doing with Andrews and you want to kind of make your own identity. So I think it was always hard at the beginning, like lots of dishes. Uh, you have an idea for a dish, and then you you try and it doesn't really work. And I think slowly when we when we opened first, we didn't they didn't want us. We didn't want to spend a lot of money. I think it was because we. Or, uh, took over an ex- existing restaurant and lots of the things were in place already. Um, so we, um, yeah, we kept the menu quite simple. Um, and I think that time at Gilson, when I had been at Gilson, I kind of um, had um, time to work on some of my own kind of techniques and my own ideas, which was, which probably helped me, which helped me between the Andrew and the Carlton Wine Room, which was good. Um, but I think yeah, if I didn't have that time between the Carlton wine room and Andrew, I might, dishes might have been a lot similar to what we were doing at the McConnell Group. Maybe some of the techniques and, and dishes. Um, yeah, but I, yeah, it's um, it's always a challenge. You know I mean to kind of separate yourself from where you where, we, where you've been working for so long, because Andrew's so established in Melbourne and everyone's kind of eating his food and knows what his food is like. You know what I mean?
1: Well, let's talk about your food. Could you give us your spin on what your cuisine is, and then maybe some dishes to sort of exemplify what that is
0: um well i think that the uh, carter was a modern australian bistro really and uh, we we um we take influences from the the city we live in really and um, we've got some examples of dishes we met we we've we, say so we've got a cauliflower salad which is kind of middle eastern uh, it's got some sesame dressing on there and some um, sumac and stuff um and we just try to keep if we if we do Taking um, inspiration from other cuisines, we just try to keep it so it um, works with the other dishes on the dish. Nothing is like overpowering any other dishes. Um, we have a lot of pork on the menu. One of our signatures is we do a duck and duck and pork croquette with gentleman's relish, which is a perfect like just snack food. It's um, um, some beautiful pork shoulders from Western Plains pork, um, some duck legs that just they both it, um, confit in the oven overnight, just. We just cover them with tin foil on a tray, or no, cover them on tin tinfoil on a tray and just cook them slowly in the oven, no oil or anything. We just let them braise gently and the juices, the juices release. And then we just shred the pork shoulder, shred the duck legs, um, chop up all the fat, put any juice that's come out of each of the meats and pour them back into the, into the mix. Lots of Dijon mustard, mix it up, season it, a little bit of quarter spice, and then we just set it on trays. And then we cut it into little um, rectangles, flour, egg and breadcrumb doughs deep fried them and then just a gentleman's relish on top which is like a prune prune relish with a little bit of anchovy in it so they're like they're really popular from day one they'll probably never come off the menu and a good good ham um, good wine snack i think what we what we try to do with the current Winer as well is um we kind of focus on the wine first and then we match the food afterwards so the food doesn't really interfere with the wine too much that was the Andy and travis's focus which is which is really good so we use a little bit of chilli but we don't use a lot of chilli um and we use we try to have a lot of snacks on the menu so if you come in for a glass of wine you just have a few snacks here and there as well um we've always got a beautiful pork chop on western plains pork chop and we change the garnish seasonally um but probably the one the 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 most the best garnish we do is that we do a um so with the pork to eat the pork chops from judy we get or do we get the pork racks from judy hang them in the fridge for a week to dry them out um and then we take the bones out leave the leave the line and strap the belly in we just take out that um the rack bone and cut them into 250 gram chops we take the skin off the skin we put in the croquette mix and we chop up through the croquette mix we can make that and then the for the chops we just season the chops with a um just a salt and pepper mix grill it over the hibachi um for service we and then we finish it with lots of fennel pollen when it comes off the that when we've sliced it and it's ready to serve it's a really popular thing to do in Tuscany it's, the fennel pond is really delicious with the pork chop it gives that nice aniseed flavor and then we serve it with a we make like a mala style sauce mala sauce is a szechuan sesh- sauce we used to make it um, super normal but I've um, tweaked it a little bit to make the ingredients sort of not, we don't use szechuan pepper we use lots of black pepper instead of szechuan pepper we still use a little bit of chili in there but not a lot of chili and uh, it's got soy sauce red wine vinegar sugar um, some fried shallots and lots of garlic, so it's like a sweet and sour sauce almost. Um, then we mix that with some beautiful chickpeas and some fresh cucumbers, so it's like a salad. Um, so it's like a crunchy sweet and sour salad. Put the pork chop on top, lots of fennel and pollen, and it's just yeah, like the, the pork chop with the sweet and sour dressing, it just helps cut through the richness of the pork, and it's beautiful. The pork, the, the pork chop is from Judy's. Um, I think it's the best pork I've used. It just the, pork, the fat just melts in your mouth, and it's just consistent and yeah, it's just it's a winner. Everyone loves it.
1: You mentioned that when the pork comes in, you hang it for a week. What what's the purpose of doing that? And and is there a specific temperature that needs to be at?
0: No, we just we just hang it in our normal cool room. Uh, we don't we don't have a dry aging room, cool room. And um, when well, the pork comes in in the vapap bag, so we just take it out. It's basically. Which, if we can give it a longer than a week and a half, we can. We try to, but it just depends on how many we're selling. It's basically just to dry the, pork, dry the pork out and dry the skin. So when we go to bone the pork out, it's a little bit easier for us. And then when we portion it into the chops, the skin is nice and dry, so the skin comes off. If the skin is like really wet and fresh, it's really hard to get the skin perfectly off. It's like when you filleting a piece of fish, you want to get the skin off and leave all the fat on the pork. So it's like perfectly skinned. That's one of the reasons, and it just um, just dries it out. Maybe it gives it a touch, touch more flavour, as well for us. You've got
1: many challenges in creating your menu, and you often start, as you mentioned, with the wine first, and then the sort of food that goes with that. Can you tell us about how you create dishes? Does it start with a, a producer, or uh, tell us about the sort of method that you have there?
0: Yeah, well we've 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 got our like um our standard producers that we use. So we might have like we use the pork from Western Plains. We get some beautiful Cherwagoo from Sherwagoo that's they kind of they're always staples of the menu. So we work with the producer and then I think especially with the proteins and then we work we have our proteins like pork and beef is always on. We always have a half roast chicken on whenever we can get it. And then we just um design the um design the dishes around the producers and lots of our producers as well are farmers. So they've got lots of beautiful seasonal vegetables that we match with um, all our proteins and stuff. And then we have a lot of, we have a lot of um, dishes on the menu that are probably signatures that we'll probably, we can't really change. We have like the croquettes, we've got the anchovy on the fried bread. Um, We've got the focaccia with the uh, potato focaccia with stracciatella, which is probably our biggest seller. rumbaba which won't come off either and then we've got probably we've probably got um for it probably got 12 things in total on the savory side of the menu and there's probably like maybe six of those that will never that are signatures and then we just everything else is kind of um seasonal um seasonal garnishes really um and we just try to change the menu depending on what the producers have like coming in, really. Um, yeah, and that's, we, we try to keep half roast chicken, pork chop and we do whole fish and we do the steak for mains and that's, we just, try, and we do a pasta dish as well. It stays the same as well.
1: You've been running your own kitchen now for two years. Uh, what's been some of the challenges? Has there been a few hiccups along the way? And, you know, what, what do you like to do to get the best out of your team?
0: Well, yeah, I think the Caron One room has it's. It, it's well, I'll give you a bit of like the carbon One. We, we seat about 150 at the Caron One room. It's it's quite deceiving from the outside. You probably wouldn't think we seat that many people, but um, I think we we've got three function rooms that all seat so three function rooms that seat 20, 20 people each. So that's 60 covers in the function rooms. Um, so I think on on a busy night when it's when it's like heaving, or on a Saturday you could have you could have three functions for lunch and three functions for dinner. So it's um you're going through a lot, a lot of food, a lot of produce. And I think it's just like, and you're open from someday you open from 12 straight through, so you're open in the afternoon as well. So some days you could on a Saturday, you could be busy from 12 to 11 straight through in the afternoon. There's not much time to prep and it's, you know what I mean? You've got six functions on. I think that's, that's a big challenge is, um, just being on top of the prep and having all the systems in place to make sure you're on top of the prep, um, when we're writing the function menus, we try to um, keep them similar-ish to some of the stuff that's on the menu, so we're not doubling up on prep. I think that's one of the one of the big challenges there. And we've got a, we've got a chef solely that just covers the functions, and then with functions, you've got dietries as well. So you need to. That's a big thing with the functions is we when we write the function menus, we really try to make them as dietary friendly as possible without um, affecting the actual end result of the dish, making sure it's still nice, beautiful, and tasty. Um, um, rostering is always a hard one when you're doing seven days a week I mean trying to people are ringing in sick trying to keep I think the big thing for us is um making sure everyone is happy I think we're trying to get everyone working 38 to 40 hours um no one does doubles anymore everyone does lunches or dinners you mean um and I think that's a big motto from the the, the owners as well Andy and Travis I think is like um keeping all the staff happy and being respectful um, and just being being nice to one another, really, I think that flows down from the top really, really well. Everyone everyone gets on really well, and that's really important.
1: You've built an amazing career as a really influential chef, but what makes a great chef? Is it something that anyone can do, or are there certain traits?
0: Well, I think anybody anybody can be anybody can be a really good cook. But I think taking the next step from cooking to managing a kitchen is a really, really big step. Um, Look, I've made a lot of mistakes along the way. I look back on some of the things I did when I was probably running kitchens and I do a lot differently now. I think when I was young and maybe a little bit angrier and stuff. But I think the biggest, I think um, uh, there's a lot more responsibility when stepping up from a cook to running a kitchen. You've got all the costs to worry about, rosters, staff ringing in sick, um, consistency of everything really, making sure all the systems are running. Um, And I think, yeah, it's 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 a lot more responsibility, and it takes up a lot of time, of your time and it cuts into your family time as well. So that's something you kind of got to um, kind of give up a little bit as well. Um, but I think what I've learned over the years is um, just being more respectful to people. I think maybe when I was a cutter, I was, I was just a little, It was it was different back then. I think we're like we were. It was long hours. Everyone was doing doubles. Lots lots of pressure. But I think all the mistakes i might have learned. Uh, made back then i tried to rectify now just be be nice to your staff give time to um listen to them and put a lot of time into training with the young people as well and you, you do you do see the results which is really really important and i think just yeah just having time for your staff and just remembering that like, everybody used to be not very good once you know what i mean we were all crap when we started out so just like using that and just maybe not snapping at people as much and taking biting your biting your tongue before you actually speak and getting angry at someone, you know what I mean, and explaining to them why it's wrong instead of bollocking them and getting angry. I think that's a, that's a big thing.
1: What do you love about the industry, and where is your sort of happy medium as a chef?
0: Well, I'm I love the industry. I'm hundred percent committed. I always have been. It's I, I couldn't do. I don't think I could do anything else if I stopped cooking. It's it's what I love doing. Um, and I think over the years, I think the the, the best thing about the industry now is just the openness between um uh, between restaurants like sharing sharing recipes and um, there's there's a little bit of what rivalry but is not i think everyone's like more friendly now and um, people are willing to share i think a lot, back in the day everyone was a lot secretive Why oh, you can't have the recipe they're going to copy you blah, blah blah but i think that doesn't really matter anymore i think it's what you if you have an ingredient at the dinner it's, it's what you do with it you mean know, as long as you're doing it properly um and i think the just the um the people you meet in the industry is really good. I think most of my friends are from the industry. Um uh back of house and front of house. I think Melbourne has a very vibrant food scene. I think um there's lots there's lots to see on your days off food wise and there's lots to eat. Um um yeah I think it's um yeah, I'm just trying to think, sorry. <laughs> um yeah it's just um I just, I just love doing it. It's just one of those, I wouldn't do anything else.
1: When you look back on your career, what's been the the real highlights for you and the pivotal changes that created you as a chef?
0: Well, the big highlight I think for me was, I was always um, either going to go to London or going to come to Australia. And I think coming to Australia was probably one of the, the best things I ever did. I think I probably would not have learned as much as I would have in London as I've learned in Australia. Um, because of the diversity of the city and all the different cuisines and just the stuff you can eat on your days off and I th- um, the people I've met and just the Australian culture it's, itself has been really probably the best move i've ever made and I think just working with the people I've worked with along the way, like working with Paul and working with Andrew, and I think working with Andrew is just Andrew's never stood still on anything that he's done he's always moved forward and he's like probably one of the the probably the, the top restaurateur in Australia, chef wise, for what he's done, and I think, just working with someone like that and just seeing, just how how his restaurants have evolved over the years is inspiring, and I I think I've taken a lot from that, um, and yeah, I think Australia's probably the biggest one for me. Coming here and met my partner here, and you know what I mean have a really good life here now, and lots of, lots of good friends and a good network, and I think Australia is, is probably cooking some of the best food in the world right now as a whole you know what I mean which
1: is which is really inspiring well we're moving towards summer what can we expect to see um on your menus as uh, as it heats up
0: as it heats up well um well that's what we always look forward to tomatoes when the tomatoes come in and it's just depending on how the season's been if they're good or bad and i think we always try to do since we've opened we we used to do a really a really nice um anchovy dressing cumulus on the tuna with the crushed peas. And I'm, I kind of took that dressing and made it a little bit different. We blended it so it's more emulsified. And we dress our tomatoes with the, with the anchovy dressing. And just, it doesn't need much. If you get really good tomatoes, a little bit of anchovy dressing, lots of black pepper, a little bit of olive oil, and maybe some fresh ricotta and a bit of basil. And that, like, people just, like, people go off on that dish. And we just look forward to having tomatoes, every year so we can do a variation of that dish so that's one of the, the big things we look forward to um i've really um um i really want to try and hopefully get to the used asparagus before the season ends because we've missed out on asparagus this year which has been a big bummer because i really love using asparagus we do asparagus want to do the asparagus with some marinated buffalo mozzarella some smoked salmon this is a lemon dressing Just really simple um um, summer lots of zucchinis coming in we'll probably do zucchini salad and um, some beautiful blueberries you we'll get some beautiful blueberries from Mundura blueberries from they come in from January to March so we'll do dessert with blueberries we we'll get some beautiful corn from um, baby corn from John and uh, Janella Farms has some beautiful corn he does amazing big corn as well and you can either just eat a row or just we'll do a side dish sorted that. Um, and yeah there's lots of stuff it's <laughs> you know what I mean
1: well i can't let you go without giving you giving us a a great tip you mentioned when you're taking the skin off the pork about leaving the fat on the pork and you also like to dry the pork before you you cook it is there, is there a secret that move that you do for crackling
0: crackling i just um what the way i, I usually do crackling is i get a get a pan i put like maybe half a cup of oil in there so it's like so i kind of submerge the skin in the oil make sure your skin is dry um I like to salt the skin a little bit as well, just before I cook it half an hour and brush the salt off. It helps it to crackle up. I don't really score the skin. And then if I'm doing a rack, I um, get the oil warm. Don't get it too hot. Put the skin, pork in skin side. I'll make sure the skin is nice and dry. And then I just slowly cook the, keep, cook the pork skin in the oil and every, every so often just push down, check the pork skin to see if there's any patches that need to be crackled up. Put some pressure on the pork. Just be careful because it does spit. Um, and just cook it slowly on the skin until it's nicely, um, get a nice crackle on it. And then I just finish the pork in a, maybe an oven that's on 150 and I take it to internal, maybe 50, 55 at a thermometer. So you've already got the crispy crackling and then you're just cooking the pork in the oven. So it's nice and low and the skin it should stay nice and crispy as well.
1: Well, that's amazing. JP, we've loved having you on the crackling um, please keep in touch.
0: Thank you for having me, and thanks for um thanks for having your podcast, it's something to listen to.
1: Awesome, mate, take care. This is the crackling, a deep in the weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.